The title of the message this morning comes directly from the scriptures where Jesus addresses the subject of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. We'll be looking primarily at two passages of scripture this morning. First one is going to be found in Matthew chapter 18. We're looking at verses one through four. If you have a Bible and you will locate that passage this morning, the second will be Matthew chapter 20 verses 25 through 28. So if you locate Matthew 18 and then turn to Matthew 20, maybe place your finger there because we'll be turning to it after we read 18. And then once you have located that passage in your copy of the Word of God, I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Please stand. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. This is from the New King James Version. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become his little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now flip over to chapter 20, beginning with verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be the first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you. Matthew's signature phrase, kingdom of heaven, is found 32 times in the gospel that he penned under the inspiration's Holy Spirit and is found nowhere else in scripture. So it is unique to Matthew. And whereas we would think it refers to the place where, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, the followers of Christ stood there and watched him ascend into heaven. And the angel said, you know, why stand you gazing here into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go, go and serve him. And so they, uh, they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. Uh, so, but the place, the kingdom of heaven that we're speaking of today is not what we normally think of when we think of heaven. It's, when it's used in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. Entering the kingdom means coming under the sovereign rule of God. So Jesus is talking directly about entering God's kingdom by faith. That is through salvation. The phrase enter the kingdom of heaven is used three times in Matthew and in each case it refers to personal salvation. Therefore, when we accept Jesus Christ and he has shed blood on the cross for payment of our sins, We confess our sins, accept Christ, we we surrender our lives to his sovereignty, his ruling in our lives. The Bible says at that moment, we become a member of and a participant in his glorious kingdom, which he called the kingdom of heaven. Now, with that understanding of what Jesus meant by kingdom of heaven, we can go to the first of three statements concerning his kingdom from our text. So if you are note takers, this is about to be number one. From Matthew 18, 1 and 3, we see that entrance into the king of heaven demands childlikeness. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven demands childlikeness. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted 
and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember in seminary, one of the first things that you're taught in preaching class and in studying the Bible is that that context in Scripture is everything. You need to understand the context of a passage of Scripture, what happened before it, what happened after it, what is going on in that passage of Scripture. So as we look at the context here, we see that Jesus spoke these words in Galilee. Of course, it's located in the, the northern portion of Israel, and it's around the Sea of Galilee. More specifically, Jesus and his disciples were in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Today, there are ruins of the city of Capernaum. You can go there. I've had the opportunity to go to Israel twice now. And it is amazing when you walk there. And, you know, I always tell people, if you get an opportunity to go to the Holy Land, go. Because it will change your life. One thing it'll do, you can never read Scripture the same again. Because you have been there where it actually took place. And it's just a, I mean, it makes the, you've heard the expression, makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. I'm glad it's here, not here, because, but anyway, uh, so it just, I don't know, it just overwhelms you to the fact that you are standing in a place where Christ stood. You are, you are walking on the paths that Jesus walked. Capernaum, if you go there today, there's a, the ruins, there's a gate, that, that, uh, an entrance that you go into the city. And on that gate, it says the hometown of Jesus Christ. So we know that in his Galilean ministry, Jesus stayed in Capernaum and became his kind of center of operation, if you will. As he would go out in the different areas, he would come back. One of the main reasons that's true is because Simon Peter's house was there in Capernaum. And so Jesus, and there's a synagogue there. One of the, one of the most striking things for me is you walk in the gate and there's a little, there's a passageway. It's kind of, you could tell it was an ancient street there in the city, different dwellings, uh, ruins of dwellings on both sides. But down about a hundred yards after you walk through the, the gate is a, uh, the ruins of a, uh, a synagogue. And if you read in scripture, you'll see that Jesus taught in that synagogue. He did healing in that synagogue. One of the amazing things about it, that synagogue has been rebuilt a couple of times through the centuries. It's like I said, it's in ruins now, but the, the, the tiles that were in the synagogue when Jesus actually walked there or have been excavated there. So you can actually look and stand. They, they kind of protect it. They don't want people walking over it. But there's a section there where you see, you look at those and you say, Jesus, my Savior, walked on those tiles here in this, uh, in this synagogue. It's just amazing there. As you walk out of the, the ruins of the synagogue and look straight down towards the Sea of Galilee, there's a, there's a church constructed there now. And that church is very unusual in that it has a glass bottom floor. And so when you walk in that church and you go to the center of it, you can look down and there, are, there, is, a, uh, there is an ancient home there, the relics, the, the ruins of an ancient home. And Bible scholars believe that that is the home of Simon Peter. So you're actually in the area where Peter uh, lived, uh, where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, where many came there and were healed in his home. So again, it's just amazing to experience uh, what, uh, that you're in that actual site. But Capernaum was, his, was where this, this passage, where Jesus was speaking to his disciples. In chapter 17, look back to chapter 17, look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 17. There it says, now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. 
and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. In chapter 16, verse 21, there's another instant where Jesus, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So twice... In the last couple of days, before Jesus, before what we read about this morning, Jesus has told his disciples, okay, this is what's going to happen. Okay, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be beaten with a cat of nine tails. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be hung on a cross. I will die. The third day I will be resurrected. You would think that message would stick to them in their mind, wouldn't you? You would think, how are you going to forget that? This is something so different from what Jesus has said. He was trying to prepare his disciples for his departure and what was going to happen so that they might not be so overwhelmed. But instead of being concerned about Jesus, what were they concerned about? Who's going to be greatest in his kingdom? Who's going to have those positions of honor and prestige in his kingdom? To me, if I'd have been Jesus, that would have been so discouraging. I just told you I'm going to die for you. I just told you my life is going to be, I'm going to be beaten to a pulp and and be strung out on a, a, a cruel Roman cross and there I'm going to die for you. Oh, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, remember me. I would like one of those positions of honor in your kingdom. That would be so, so overwhelming and discouraging for us. But it's amazing how, how Jesus, uh, you know, he, he responded to that. And we'll look at that in a minute. But how many of you men, I'm going to ask you, the men a question. How many of you men have ever been accused of practicing selective hearing? Raise your hand. And the ones that aren't raising your hand, you're lying, okay? Because we've all done it. What that means is we hear what we want to hear. We hear what we want to hear and we just neglect everything else. All right? That's basically what the disciples were doing. They didn't want to hear that. They were, they were so excited about the fact that in their mind, Jesus, see, they were Jews, okay? In their mind, Jesus, because he was the Messiah, they were convinced that he was about to go to Jerusalem, set up his earthly kingdom, defeat the Roman rule, set up his kingdom, and they would rule and reign with him. They were looking at what they thought was the immediate future. It was something that was going to happen thousands of years later. We know that now, right? But they were thinking, okay, Jesus is going to be setting up his kingdom. We want to be there with him. We want to be in those positions of honor. And therefore, you know, that's what we're concerned about. Another reason they may not have let it register what was happening. After Jesus had given that sacred prediction, Peter came to him and he said, now they come to us and told us that we need to pay the temple tax. Okay, they were challenged on that. Peter says, we need to pay this, Lord, how do we do that? And listen to that. Jesus said, go down to the Sea of Galilee, go right down there on the shore and just cast in a line and you're going to catch a fish. And when you pull that fish up, just open his mouth and there's going to be a coin right there and it's going to be just the exact amount to pay the temple tax. It was a miracle, okay? So the fact that Jesus was still performing miracles, the fact that Jesus was, you know, it looked like everything was just as the way it was, in their mind they're thinking, whatever he said, whatever he meant by that crucifixion and dying and all that kind of stuff, that's just not true, okay? So we're going to focus on who's going to be greatest in his kingdom. How disheartened and disappointed the Lord must have been, but he used that as an example, he, he, he wanted to teach them a lesson there. Instead of scolding them for their selfishness and lack of sensitivity, Jesus, the master teacher and illustrator, called a little child to himself. 
I love this picture, okay? There's no, there's no question in Scripture how Jesus loved the children, okay? And everywhere he went, uh, the children would come to him, and Jesus was so loving, and they just, they, just, they just couldn't be around him enough, and Jesus would use them as illustrations. So he took this child, and Bible scholars tell us this was probably a toddler, you know, just a little toddler. May have been even in Peter's house. Could have been some of Peter's relatives. But this little toddler came up to Jesus, and Jesus put out his arm. The little child came and sat in his lap. And Jesus used this child as an example of what it would mean to be in his kingdom. Notice the Lord's words. He says, unless you are converted. Unless you are converted. Now, in the Greek, that word translated converted means to turn or to turn around. Okay, it's like you're, like you're walking in one direction and then you make an about face and head in the opposite direction. Okay, it's a turn or turning about. It means to make an about face and go in the opposite direction. In his commentary on Matthew, Dr. John MacArthur explains that conversion is the other half of repentance. Repentance is being sorry for sin and turning away from it. Conversion is the expression of the will that fully turns from sin to the Lord. In other words, we repent, we turn from our sin, we turn to Jesus. Y'all remember, how many of you did the Faith Sunday School Evangelism in here? I know quite a few of you did. And one of them, you know, the F-A-I-T, the T is for turn, and it means to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ and to accept the, the payment that he made on the cross. It's that same, it's that same, it's a turning away from our sin, turning to Christ and fully surrendering to him, Okay. Jesus then completed his statement about entering the kingdom of heaven. He said, and become like children. To be converted requires people to become like children. Now, you think about a little child. A little child is trusting, right? They're unpretentious, okay? They're just so, they, 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 they come just as they are, all right? They have, they have no, uh, you know, they have no, no bragging rights. They have nothing to, to, to boast their, 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 uh, their uh, value in. They just come just like they are. They're just so innocent, trusting of others, without ambition for recognition and greatness. In effect, Jesus was saying to his disciples, you are so concerned about which one of you will be greatest in the kingdom, but unless you become as this little child, you won't even enter the kingdom. Did you hear that? Now, who's he talking to? The disciples. I want you to think about this. Jesus is talking to these 12 men that he handpicked. Yeah, one of them was a rotten to the core, all right? No doubt about that, or he came to be. I think Judas always had that choice up to the last minute. People say, well, he was just destined to deny. No, he wasn't. He always had that choice until he finally decided he's going to turn away. He's going to make that decision to deny. But anyway, he chose, he handpicked these 12 disciples. And he is saying to these 12 that we would think if they were concerned, if they were convinced that he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, they're convinced, you know, this is, this is him. So we've surrendered our life to him. But he's saying to them, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you're not even going to enter the kingdom. I want you to think about that this morning. Jesus could, would say to me, Billy, it doesn't matter if you're a preacher. It doesn't matter what kind of credentials you think you have. Unless you are converted and become as a little child, you don't get a free pass into heaven, into my kingdom. Deacons, you may be a, de you may be a great deacon, but on the merit of just being a deacon without being converted and becoming as a little child, you're not going to heaven. A lot of people will say to you when you witness to them, I was born in a Christian home. So that makes me, a, I was born a Christian 
That's, that, that's not true. That can't be true. You're not born a Christian. You come to the point where you realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You confess your sin, invite Christ to come into your heart and save you. Then you become one of his followers. But you're not born a Christian. So we, we cannot take any of who we are, who we claim to be, and think that's the credentials that we need in order to get into heaven. Does that make sense? Jesus said, disciples, you may not even get there because you've got the wrong heart. What was their heart? Self-promotion. You know, being, being in positions of honor in his kingdom. Jesus said, you've got to have a change of heart if you're going to be in my kingdom. You must be converted and become like little children. The fact that you are a disciple alone or whatever, deacon, Sunday school teacher, born in a Christian home, that alone is not going to get you entrance in the kingdom of heaven. Upon reading the parallel passage to our text in Mark 10, John Calvin surmised that kingdom citizenship is restricted to children and to those who act like them. Makes sense, doesn't it? You know, a few years ago, I had an experience that every time I recall this experience, it reminds me of this passage of scripture of how, how innocent this child was and coming to Jesus and trusting him. And I had been to Ukraine on a mission trip or going to meet some of our missionaries over there. And so I had traveled, uh, I was traveling back from Ukraine. I had a layover in Frankfurt, Germany. And so got off the plane in Frankfurt, was going through the airport. And I met a couple, they were from California. They had their six-year-old daughter traveling with them. So we just began to talk and converse, come to find out they were on the same plane from Kiev that I was. They had been in another country, but they flew into Kiev, then to Frankfurt, and then to California. Um, but we, we began to converse. Well, that little six-year-old girl, my, her dad and I were talking, and she was back here. Uh, she just, she came up right between us, and it was almost as if she pushed us away. And she looked up at me and began to, to grill me on who I was. Uh, was I married? Did I have any children? How many children do you have? How old are your children? You know, what does your wife do? What kind of work do you do? I mean, just all kinds of questions. Little six-year-old girl. And so I was, I was answering her question best as I could. You know, she'd catch me off guard with a couple of them. <laughs> it was, you know, to be able to have to say to a six-year-old, wait a minute, let me think about that before I answer it. You know, that's something not right about that. But anyway, I just answered the best I could. And then she looked up at me and stuck her hand out and grabbed my hand. And she said, I want to be your friend. It terrified me. Because her mom and dad were right behind me. And I just knew when I, took the, when I looked around, they were going to have a horrified look on their face like, who is this strange man that our daughter has grabbed his hand and said she wanted to be their friend? Well, to my surprise, they were smiling. And it was like, undoubtedly, this has happened before. You know, but she, her mom said, you know, she never meets a stranger. So we just, she just kept on talking. Well, we got to the transport that was going to take us to our hotel in downtown Frankfurt. And when we got on the transport, her mom and dad sat over here and they left room for her to sit down. Well, she jumped up in the seat by me and she was looking up at me and she had a little, um, a little carry-on, a wheeled carry-on, a little bitty thing about like that. And she pulled it up there and opened it up and took out her doll. And she began to tell me all about her doll, you know, what the doll's name was and everything, how long she had had her doll and all this kind of stuff. And so she just, I mean, just kept on. And she just looked up at me with those eyes, you know, and just, it, it just, I mean, it just melts your heart. But we got close to the, we were getting close to the hotel 
And her mom and dad said, you need to get your bag ready. You know, we're almost there. And she, she looked up at me. She said, can you have dinner with us tonight? <laughs> and I said, well, I've really, you know, I started thinking. I, I thought, you know, that might be the straw that break the camel's back on these parents, you know, that she's invited this strange man to have dinner with them. So I said, honey, I, I, I am so thankful that you want me to have dinner with y'all. But I said, I really have got a lot to do. I've got a lot of things i got to do tonight. And i got to fly out early in the morning. We had different uh, departure times. And so I said, I, I really don't want to do that. Well, she finally accepted that. Uh, her parents were agreeing that, you know, that we need to have dinner together. But I, I finally said, you know, I, I, we better not do that. So finally, she, uh, she, she looked up at me and she said, uh, uh, she said, thank you for being my friend. She said, I have really enjoyed talking. Six-year-old child. I mean, she'll be 20. Goodness, that was 20 years ago. This, this woman's 26 years old now. But every time I think back about that incident, I think about her, her genuine humility, her, her trustworthiness, her, the fact that she she didn't know me from Adam, and neither did her parents, but she trusted me, and I don't I don't know what caused that, but it just reminds me of how Jesus said, unless you become converted, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, not only does entrance into the kingdom of heaven demand childlikeness, we see also in Matthew 18, 4, that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is defined by humility. This is your second point. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is defined by humility. Jesus said, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Greek word translated humbles has the literal meaning of making low, of making low. It has been said that in God's eyes, the one who lowers himself is the one who is elevated. Listen to this. The one who genuinely considers himself to be the least is the one God considers to be the greatest. Continuing to use the little child as an object lesson, Jesus drove home the reality that all the disciples' efforts in self-promotion and self-exaltation would be despised and rejected in his kingdom. And that the only way to rise higher is to go lower. You may have heard it described as the upside, the, the, Jesus' upside down kingdom. Okay, as you know, in the world, in the secular world, to be able to become great, you got to ascend the ladder, right? You keep on and you, you get promotions and you go up and up and finally you get, you know, you reach the pinnacle of success. Well, in, the, in Christ's kingdom, the lower you go, the greater you are. The more you are willing to humble yourself and, and seek God's will for your life and serve him and serve others, the more you are like Jesus Christ. We must humble ourselves, make ourselves low. Lutheran pastor and scholar Richard Linsky wrote, only an empty vessel can God fill with his gifts. And the emptier we are of anything that is due to ourselves, the more God can pour into these vessels his eternal riches, honors, and glory. A picture of humility. You know, our, our greatest example of humility, of course, is Jesus himself. I love what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. It's called the self-emptying passage. In Greek, it's the kenosis passage. But it talks about what Jesus did for us there. And it says, being in the form of God... He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, 
taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, listen to this, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was our ultimate example in humility, emptying himself. Jesus had every right while he was on this earth to at any point of that time of, of trials and, and difficulties in life. He just said, hey, that's it, guys. I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What you're doing is going to be destroyed. Stop it. He never did exercise that right, which he always had. Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. And he allowed himself some restrictions on his, 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 uh, his deity while he was in the human flesh. And so he endured those things. He emptied himself of self and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul goes on to say, therefore God has also highly exalted him, listen to this, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself and gave his all for us. You know, I often... I'm perplexed at times. First of all, how people can get so offended when you tell them that there's, that Jesus came and out of love for you, he died on the cross for you to give you the gift of eternal life to pay the payment for your sins so that you might not have to pay it yourself. And people get angry at that. They, they get offended at that. You're telling me that you get offended by the fact that somebody has played, paid the ultimate price for your sin and has died for you and that makes you angry? There's something wrong with that. How can you not realize that you don't want to pay? And I've heard people in their arrogance say, I'd rather pay for my sin myself. No, you don't. If you know what that payment is going to cost, what it's going to cost you, you don't want to go there. I think the greatest tragedy when man stands before God and God basically asks, what did you do with my Jesus? The greatest tragedy is gonna say, I didn't accept what he did for me. I decided to pay for it myself, God. And they're gonna burn for all eternity. I can't imagine that. It always overwhelms me that people get so angry and so offensive or defensive when you share the precious gospel with them. The disciples' desire for greatness in the kingdom of heaven could only be realized as they continued to walk humbly. This is that process, okay? Our walk in Christ should be one of humility. And we think about all the things God has called us to do. But if it's not with a humble spirit, if we're proud, if we're, if we're, uh, if we're um, uh, proud of ourselves and in our own accomplishments, if we're arrogant, there's no place for that in the kingdom. It's in humility. You know, I speak as a, as a minister, as, a, as, as one who once pastored churches. And I'll tell you, there is no place in Christ's kingdom work for an arrogant pastor and minister. No place. No place. But none for you as well. There's no place for any of us if we are following Christ he calls us to be humble, not arrogant, not proud, not taking stock in our own accomplishments and believing that that makes us right before God. It's humbly 
coming before the Lord and serving him and serving others. Thus far, we've seen that interest in the kingdom of heaven demands childlikeness. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is defined by humility. And third, from Matthew 20, 25, and 28, advancement or maybe maturity, you can use that word as well, but advancement in the kingdom of heaven is most clearly demonstrated through Christ-like service to others. Jesus said in verse 26, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now here, once again, as before, in chapter 17, Jesus shares with the disciples about his impending death. Verse 18, Jesus said, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The difference is now, Jesus, instead of being in Galilee, he's making that trek south. He's going towards Jerusalem. You know, there's a path in scripture that says that Jesus turned his eyes towards Jerusalem. It's just as if he had blinders on and he was set for Jerusalem. He was headed to Judea and Jerusalem because he knew what awaited him there and he desired to do the will of the Father. And so he was headed towards Jerusalem when again he, he warned them about what was going to happen. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify. The third day he will rise again. Like before the disciples exercise selective hearing. They don't really want to hear that. What they Again, their concern is who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. The Lord's most detailed prediction of his passion and death fell again on deaf ears. To complicate matters even more, two of the disciples decided to enlist their mother's influence and her persuasion to ensure that they would have positions of prominence, power, and prestige in the Lord's kingdom. Salome is her name. She was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, making her Jesus' aunt and James and John, his first cousins. And she, they thought, okay, we'll get Salome to go to Jesus and speak to him on our behalf that when he gets in his kingdom, we want the positions of being on his right and his left in the kingdom. <laughs> Jesus had some very sobering words for them. Jesus said... And he's speaking, Salome has made the request, but when he answers, he answers to James and John. You know what that means? They set her up. They asked her to do that. You know, it wasn't without their, without their consent, without their knowledge that she went to Jesus and asked for that. But Jesus answered them and he said, or he asked, are you willing to drink the cup which I am going to drink? Are you willing to have the baptism with which I am going to be baptized. And of course, oh sure, Jesus, yeah, we're going to do that. They had no clue what that meant. They hadn't even heard what he had said about dying on the cross. But you know, they eventually did drink of that cup. They were persecuted. They were persecuted for being followers of Christ. They were baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. It cost them their life. But they didn't realize at that time. And Jesus said to them, indeed, you will drink of that cup. You will be baptized with that baptism. But to be able to give you the right and the left hand of me on my, when I sit on my throne, that's out of my hands. That's the Father's decision. He's already made that decision. 
Again, their concern about who was going to be the greatest. You can imagine that the other disciples were indignant. They were angry. They were ticked at their brother disciples that they would have the gall to go to send their mother to Jesus to ask that they might have positions of prominence in his kingdom. But just as before, Jesus used the the occasion to teach his disciples and, and to us a great truth about greatness in the kingdom. Greatness is demonstrated in our service to others. Does that not seem simple enough? In other words, Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom and mature in that greatness as you serve in my kingdom, serve other people. Serve other people. What's, what's so hard about that? Well, it takes some humble spirit. It takes being childlike and realizing that, you know, to be honored by the Lord means that you're going to serve others. You know, Jesus really, he, I think Jesus put a lot of thought into how he would illustrate this, his final illustration of what it means to serve others in his name. And Jesus, it says on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus, uh, they had just observed the Lord's Supper. He took off his garment. He girded his loins. He got down on his knees, got a pan of water, and he washed their feet. Washed their feet. That was a task reserved for the lowest of the low servants in the household in first century Palestine. He washed their feet. And Jesus said to them, as I have done unto you, you also do unto others. You wash feet. You do whatever it takes in order to serve other people. It has been said that we, as followers of Christ, are never more like our Savior than when we're serving others. We're never more like, we never look more like Jesus than when we are serving other people. I'm so thankful that God has given my wife and I an opportunity to serve together in missions. And I, you know, I had... I had multiple opportunities to go all over the world sharing Christ, but Janet, a banker, you know, somebody had to make a living. So she worked, and, uh, but she said, you know, when I retire, I want, I want a ministry that we can do together. And the Lord sent me down to Kingsland, Georgia with, with Georgia Baptist Disaster Relief about 10 years ago, and I was able to, to serve there. It had been a, the hurricane had come through. A lot of houses were flooded. We went in and cleaned out the mud and everything out of the houses and helped take the sheetrock off the wall so that they could rebuild their houses. But while we were there, there was a couple, an, elder, <laughs> listen to that, an elderly couple. They're probably my age now. But anyway, there was a couple there, an older couple, and they, were, they served as husband and wife chaplains with uh, Georgia Baptist Disaster Relief. Now, the guy like me, you know, he went out and he did the grunt work. He helped clean up the house and all that kind of stuff. The wife, I noticed her, she got the homeowner who was a lady, a lady probably in her mid-50s, uh, mid to late 50s, and she had lost everything in the flood. She'd had three feet of water in her house. Everything was destroyed. Everything had to go out on the street in a pile. No matter how much it meant to you, it had to go out there and be thrown away because it was contaminated with all that flood water and you couldn't keep it because it'd make you sick or kill you. So everything was out there. This lady chaplain sat down with that woman and she had a, a, a picture album. Okay, of course it had been, it had mud all over it. It was just, it had been wet. The, some of the pictures were crumpled up and all, but some of them had been protected from the flood. And that woman sat down with her and she just, they took out those pictures one by one. 
and she'd help her clean them off, you know, wipe. And she would, she would ask the woman, who, who is this? Tell me about this. I, that was such a beautiful picture of serving someone in the name of Christ, I believe I've ever seen. That woman was so overwhelmed. She'd lost everything that she had. But here was a lady, and that woman wasn't a Christian. Uh, she, uh, and she eventually, before we left that week, she trusted Christ as her Savior. And I believe it was because of that woman chaplain's influence on her life. But she just sat down there and she cried with her. She let her tell her story. When you go into a disaster area like that, a lot of times people just need to talk. They just need somebody to listen to them because there's nobody to listen to them. Just sit down and listen to them. Pray with them. You know, but little things serving. And so I came back and I told Janet, I said, listen, I have seen a ministry that we can do together when we retire. So thankfully, we're both certified with disaster relief. We had the opportunity to go to Valdosta, Georgia after the hurricane. That was, I don't know what you realize now, that was a Cat 2 hurricane when it came to uh, Valdosta. It had been on the land for like 100 and something miles, but still was a Cat 2. It was a 5 when it made landfall. But anyway, uh, just huge damage all over Valdosta, probably, I'd say, 1,200, trees down everywhere, huge oak trees, pine trees, a lot of opportunities there. But we had, as husband and wife, we had the opportunity to go in, and, and I'm not bragging on us. I'm just thankful for the opportunity. God gave us an opportunity to serve other people, to just be Jesus to them. And, and 10 people came to know the Lord, not through just us, but through everyone that was there. I just want to encourage you, if you want an opportunity to serve other people, uh, and especially in their time of dire need, disaster relief is a great ministry. If you've got any questions about that, just, just call me and, or talk to me about it. But that is just an example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. To advance in his kingdom, to mature in the kingdom of heaven means that we are willing to serve other people to get out on our knees and wash feet. And of course, Jesus, our greatest example, says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I saw in the ball game yesterday, I, I'm thankful I was able to wear my tie this morning. I thought I wasn't going to be able to wear it, but uh, we pulled it out. But anyway, I saw there's a, I don't know whether you've seen that, hegetsus.com, have you seen those? The one that was on yesterday, and this was a ministry, they're just uh, they're talking about you know, how Jesus is involved in everyday life and his followers. And it said, this is what it said. And it goes along with the sermon this morning. He didn't invest, talking about Jesus, he didn't invest in stocks and bonds, but in others. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? He didn't invest in stocks and bonds. Jesus wasn't worried about laying aside something for a rainy day or all that. He's, he told the people that asked him you know, to follow him, he said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. You know, I don't have anything as far as the worldly uh, the possessions of this world. But he went about serving other people. And he gave us an example in doing that. We are called to be servants in Christ's upside-down kingdom where greatness is defined by humility and maturity demonstrated through Christ-like service to others. I've got just a couple of minutes. I want to ask you something. If we believe that honoring Christ being a witness for him in this world today means serving other people. How are we going to respond to that? How many of you, and I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, how many of you know that there is a homeless man that is living in the very shadow of this church? One, two, three, four, five, six. Let me tell you about him. He sleeps in the swing down here on the creek bank. He covers up with a blanket every night. He's, uh, people come by and give him food all the time. 
I, I have talked with some of the police officers, and they say he's not, he's not dangerous. He's not going to hurt you, but he's, very, he's probably got some mental issues. He's got some, a, lot of, a lot of problems. He may choose to continue to be homeless. We don't know. But you know what I found out? I came in this morning, and I, uh, I asked Brother Tommy. I said uh, they had the distribution of the food and the clothing yesterday, and I just said something about it. I said, have you met the guy that lives on the creek bank down here that sleeps in the swing? He said, yeah. He said, we gave him food yesterday. He said, we gave him clothes yesterday to put on his body. Got food in his stomach. Got food for the next few days ahead. I am thankful, folks, to be a part of a church that is willing to serve Christ by serving others. Because you know what Jesus said? When you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, what? You've done it unto me. It's just as if I was the one in that swing. May we always be a church that are looking. You know, we can always make excuses. Ah, uh, they choose to be homeless. You can't help them. And if you, know, if you give them money, they're going to go buy alcohol or cigarettes. Or, you know, when, when, the, when the Holy Spirit lays it on my heart to do something like that, I don't worry about what's going to happen with that. If the Holy Spirit says, do it, do it, don't worry about what he does with it. He's responsible for that. He's going to have to answer for that. There are people all around us, folks. I, Tommy, I mean, uh, Bobby said there's four homeless or four people living in a house over here on Nelson Street that don't have, don't have anything. They don't have clothes. They don't have food, anything. We're able to minister to them. I am thankful to be a part of a church family that takes serious Jesus' commandment to go and to serve other people. And the more we do that, listen, the more we do it, the more we're going to look like Jesus. And the more we look like Jesus, the more we're going to be used of the Lord to draw people to him. Because it's not about us, folks. It's about him. And in these last days, I don't know when the Lord's coming back. People ask me that all the time. I don't know. And Jesus said, if I spend time worried about that, I'm sinning. Because no one knows except the Lord. But I believe we're getting close. And we want to be found faithful when the Lord comes back that we are serving him. We are letting, letting him work through us to serve others so that he might be glorified and their lives might be changed. I don't know what's going to happen to our friend down here. But I do know there's a great opportunity. He's going to come to know Jesus because we're going to continue to reach out to him. We're going to serve him in Jesus' name. And we're going to, we're going to bring God on and glory in doing that. Thank you, church, for doing that. Thank you for continuing. But a lot of you wasn't able to raise your hand. You know, a lot of times, again, we turn our eyes to it because we think in our mind somehow that if we, if we turn away from it, it's going to disappear. And I think sometimes we hope it will. In other words, we'll ride by the day. Ah, oh, he's gone. Dadgummit. No, you're glad he's gone because you didn't have to do anything. Let's don't be that way, okay? Let's reach out and let the Lord use us to influence others for his kingdom. So let me draw in the net of this message with two questions. Have you ever come to the Lord as a child realizing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Realizing that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and you surrender, you you. you you are converted, you turn away from your sin, you turn to Christ, you surrender your life to him. Have you ever done that? If not, I, I beg you to do that today. I, I beg you to, to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Accept the gift of eternal life that he's given you and be saved. Second, if you've been saved, and uh, are you humbly and sacrificially serving others in Jesus' name, demonstrating to the lost world that there are people who care? There are still Christians in this world today. 
Again, I'm thankful that you are allowing the Lord to use you. But during our time of invitation, if God has impressed upon your heart the need for coming to this altar and praying this morning, come and speak with me. However, if there's someone here that's lost, never trusted Jesus, you come and, and let me share with you what it means to be a follower of Christ.